Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by Tobias Wright and Oliver Camacho. All right, tonight, how do you sell opera to audiences in the 21st century? That's the question we'll be asking as we break down what it takes to get these darn kids into opera into opera as least, at least half as much as we are. But first, we're tackling the issue of racial, racial inequality and underrepresentation of minorities in the opera world. What can we do to make sure that other voices aside from white men are being heard? Oh, no, wait, that's me, isn't it? Plus, in the two-minute drill, you get our hot takes on everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. That's at 9.40 p.m. And, of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories, 847-866-9687. Or tweet us at Opera Box Score or post on our Facebook page. And without further ado... Oliver Camacho, how's it going? I'm so excited about uh, Triviata on Wednesday, April 24th. It's just a few days away. Oh, so excited. Uh, tickets are still available at lyricopera.org. And I believe there's a code for us to use, for our listeners to oh, use goodness. to get a discount. I don't know what it uh, is. I'll look it up real, real yeah, quick. It's Here probably we go. on our Facebook page, something like that. <laughs> the code is OBS, and that's for $30 tickets. It's a pretty good nice. deal. Yeah. Nice. And that money goes to charities. Yeah. What? Uh, <laughs> it's not just for us. No, no none We're not of getting paid us. anything, so we're doing this for charity as well. How about you, Toby? How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Um, so sports-related, but not. Well, it's more competition-related. Do you guys, are you fans of the show Jeopardy? I'm, yes. I'm a fan. I wish I could watch more often, but well, I do like it. Alex Trebek, my good friend, yeah. has a contestant on right now who is going to give Ken Jennings a run for his 74-show streak. Yeah. He's actually only won 13 games in a row only, but he's already won like a million dollars. And yeah. he's from Naperville. I hear he wow. like goes right for the Daily Doubles and like $1,000 questions like right at the beginning. And yeah. And so just like blows he, people out of the water. He's a former sports gambler. Okay. And so he has this whole theory. He's like, I want to get ahead and charge it. He's like, I'm hedging every bet that I can. And it's awesome. He's amazing. Yeah, I hear it's really cool. I have a more sports-related news. This oh, is not, hit me. This is not super new news, but it's relatively new. Um, two male cheerleaders will join the Patriots cheerleading squad for the first time in decades. Wow. And those two cheerleaders are Stephen Sontag and Driss Delahi. Stephen Sontag tag. Yeah, I'm assuming they're both gorgeous, and <laughs> I wish them lots of success. I cannot wait to follow your career. And cheerleading turns out to be a, a topic that we might be discussing on Triviata. So Ooh, everybody... that's your little helpful hint there. Mm, no more yeah, hints until okay. later on in the show, but keep okay. listening for those little helpful hints, and you can uh, uh, get your team through to the finish line that way. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. 
That was tenor Russell Thomas, who recently penned a blog post for the Canadian Opera Company talking frankly about the problem of race in the opera world. The African-American singer tackled all sorts of issues, including representation, activism, and the use of blackface in the world of opera. The link to that article is on our website. Now, gentlemen, we... In, in the business, we might be what's called part of the problem. <laughs> we, we're a very white group. So, uh, Oliver, as the uh, person of the color in the room, do you have uh, any suggestions on how to deal with that for this particular well, issue? Well, I, I did put out a call to action to our listeners. Uh, if there's anybody in the community that would like to help us uh, get through this um, blog post, because it's brilliantly written. And I think it's very important that we um, serve this article as best as we can without adding too much of our own opinion or maybe fumbling on some of the concepts or terminology. Mm. And so actually one of our um, regular guests, uh, director Amy Stebbins, suggested that we just read it verbatim. Uh, so this blog post is not easy to find. It's actually on the Canadian Opera Company's website. So we will be driving you to the website if you want to read it yourself. Uh, the article was dated uh, the April 13th. Russell Thomas on diversity, activism, and blackface in opera. And it begins with a quote, too bad you're black. Uh, and I'm going to just read Russell Thomas's words for, for himself. No, I didn't choose that title in order to be provocative or controversial. It's a direct quote from a conductor that is slash was the music director of a small Midwestern American company. I was 20 years old, and I had just sung an audition that I was actually proud of. Following the audition, as my accompanist and I were leaving the hall, the gentleman thanked me for my audition and showered me with compliments. Then, in a very serious tone, he uttered those words as if we were compelled to, he were compelled to warn me. He continued by apologizing, not for what he had said, but because he knew that I'd never, had the career, I'd never have the career that my talent deserved because I was black and he hoped that someone had told me before it was too late. I remember that audition and that day like it was yesterday. The other panelists sat quietly. My company stared at me in amazement, but as is my way, I gave him a piece of my mind, snatched my materials from the table, and walked out of the room. That was a pivotal moment in my development. While I steadily grew as a young professional from one young artist program and, comp and competition to the next, those words always stuck with me. I was determined to prove him wrong, and I believe I have. Now as I reach the heights of my profession, I believe that I have an overwhelming responsibility to make sure that no young singer should ever have to hear too bad you're black, hmm. or any variation on that theme. That is my mission at this stage of my career, to ensure that true diversity penetrates every, every level of this business. All right, I'm going to stop right there and just say a couple of things. I came through the conservatory system. I went to Northwestern, not exactly conservatory system. Drink. But, yeah. <laughs> but it's conservatory light, you know? Right. Um, and, you know, I, mean, I don't have, like, this amazing operatic voice talent. I have, I have some skills, you know, but I don't. Nobody's ever going to say, oh, your voice is huge or your voice is so beautiful. We've got to put you on stage. You know, I had my chances. But some of the commentary I heard along the way, especially when I was still an undergrad, was like, oh, you'll make a great compromario tenor, as if that's like the most I could aspire to. And I never heard people say those things to, you know, tall, handsome, white tenor from mm. Mississippi, you know, who was gorgeous, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll also say that, you know, his, his, last, his last line of this paragraph, uh, it's my mission at this stage of his career to ensure that diversity penetrates every level of the business. I am with you, Russell Thomas. I mean, more and more, I do think that uh, the performing arts administrate, administrators are trying to make their art look more diverse. But if you look at Chicago, 
if you look at the major uh, presenting organizations and you look at their administrative staffs, you would be hard pressed to find more than one or two people of color right. amongst them. So. Yeah, uh, and he does talk about that a little bit later in the article as well. I'm going to go ahead and read this next bit while we're still on the subject to uh, kind of get an idea of where he goes from here uh, in the uh, in the blog post. Uh, he says, I've been in love with opera ever since grade school when I happened upon a radio station and heard people singing weirdly. I had no idea what I was listening to or why I was so captivated by it, but the next day I went back to the radio station and t- to listen again. In my youth, I didn't really know black people sang opera. I'm not sure how I learned, but my earliest memory of singers that looked like me on stage singing opera was a broadcast of the Metropolitan Opera Centennial Gala, where I saw Leona Mitchell, Grace Bumbry, Leotine Price, and Kathleen Battle sing gloriously. As a member of the local children's chorus, I was privileged to see some of my first live performances as we got final dress rehearsal passes to the operas. I saw performances in my hometown that not only had black singers on stage like Simon Estes and Curtis Rayam, but a black music director, Willie Walters. Unfortunately, in North America, no major opera company has a black music director, artistic director, or general director. Most staff at opera companies are white and senior staff overwhelmingly so. Wayne Brown, the president and CEO of Michigan Opera Theater, is the only one I've found. Most of the leading roles on stages across North America are cast with white singing actors. There is a push to change things by diversifying the stage, but there won't be truly systematic change until the back office looks more representative of the communities that house these organizations. The same should be said of Asians and Latinos. I'm simply speaking from my black perspective. And that's, of course, uh, all from uh, Russell Thomas, if you're just joining us, not me. (laughs) But it, I, I want to sort of point out that first sentence in the second paragraph mm-hmm. there. In North America, no major opera company has a black music director, artistic director, or general director. And that's mind-boggling to me. Except for it's not at all. Right. <laughs> and I think that's the crazy thing, yeah. is that it should be mind-boggling to us. Yeah. But I read that, and while I was not familiar with that, particular statistic i went i read it and my initial thought was dude yeah that makes complete sense and yeah. it is unshocking this is so what does that say i mean one of the things that we've been noticing i think especially one of the uh when we're going through like all these opera seasons with the dodson scale uh you're we're frequently we're seeing more and more uh i think singers of color on stage in these very visible areas um, but uh, when it comes to the less visible parts in the, the stage directors, the, the conductors, people who are hidden in the pit, and then, of course, administrators, there's still a shocking lack of uh, minorities, uh, not just racial minorities or cultural minorities. We're talking about women as well. I remember when we were doing um, uh, the Bayerische Staatsoper, uh, Bayerische Staatsoper, excuse me, um, and there was uh, only, I think, what, two women conductors for the entire season? It, it's the same sort of feeling to me, like, uh, like a lot of the stuff that's, that, that is being touted as progress tends to be at the most superficial, most visible level, and we need to sort of engage with how the companies run because you can't... The people who have the most control over how the opera company goes isn't really the actor or the director. It's, it's the people who run the administration, the people and it's, who hire. It's also people that are part of the community, and I think he talks right. about this in this next segment. Okay, he before, says, you, before you get to that, though, sure. a, I just want to talk about implicit bias and I, we have to discuss that you know, if there are these administrative teams in these major performing arts organizations that are all white, mm. uh, they 
don't even realize, even they, even though they might have the best of intentions, they don't even realize what their implicit biases are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and not. the way the, the pipeline for people of color to come into that system is not clear. It's almost as if you have to go to this, you know, uh, this program, this arts administration program, where you had to have worked like this box office job to be considered for this administrative job, and like every point of entry. There, it seems to be like, well, if you're, if you have this education, if you were a dancer before, or you were an opera singer before, you know, yeah, we'd love to have you work as our box office staff, you know. So everywhere along the way, there are limitations for how people of color can get in, mm-hmm. and until we change, you know, the what qualifies, what we're calling the criteria that makes you qualify for a job, till we redescribe those things and consider alternative experiences. Right. Uh, as experiences that, that actually are equivalent to, you know, having, you know, whatever, a Bachelor of Music from, you know, Northwestern University, you know. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm in a weird situation because, like, I actually have been dealing with this my whole life. And I've wanted to be, I've wanted to put my place, myself in places where I was uncomfortable and where I was surrounded by people that were unlike me. That's always been a challenge I've enjoyed. But it's very easy to feel othered uh, in a music program, mm-hmm. in a job. And to be discouraged and to say, well, I don't want to deal with this. I don't need this in my life. I'm going to get out, you know, at an early stage and never make it to the upper echelons. I think you make an interesting point there about the the point of entry, so to speak, into those types of organizations. Um, and I think you're right that there has to be a, a, an assessment or a redefinition of who is qualified and what is qualified um, to be in those leadership positions. And I sort of lucked out with my most current job because... You know, I have this radio experience. I have like my blog. I have the podcast from before I started this. You know, so my name has been out there as somebody who has like some sort of expertise about some sort of topics. You know, mm-hmm. so <laughs> I was accepted into this club. You know, of uh, arts administrators. You know, but that doesn't mean that I still wasn't the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to you were saying the people who drive these companies. Well, they're also part of communities, and that's Russell's next point. Um, He goes on, he continues to say, Cities throughout North America are beautifully diverse. However, the stages in classical music are not equally diverse. I'm not suggesting that the arts take an affirmative action approach to casting, as the talent should always outweigh any arbitrary need to embrace diversity. That said, arts organizations should be representative of their communities, in their staffing and the artists that they present on stage, to the members of the board of directors. A major metropolitan city that has Chinese and South Asian population of nearly 25% should not have only five out of 65 roles listed performed by artists of Asian descent. In New York, a city that's 25% black, the two major orchestras have very few black musicians, not even close to 25%. Representation matters, and these numbers are discouraging to young artists. Over the past few years, there's been a lot of conversation about blackface, particularly in regards to roles like Otello and Aida. Painting someone to look like a legitimate character is not blackface. Blackface is a racist caricature performed to demean and disrespect black culture. It's a distraction to suggest otherwise, in my opinion, and a very slippery slope. Even if companies stop darkening artists to play these roles, it doesn't guarantee that they will cast a black artist. Mm. If we say that only black singers should sing Aida and Otello, and only Asian singers should sing Butterfly and Turandot, we would, would we... Oh my gosh, would we get a black Don Carlo or an Asian Elizabetta? We will essentially make minority artists less marketable with this approach, and stages will be even less diverse. Typecasting isn't the answer. I think that's just a a, a really interesting point, because I I tend to 
you you tend to overlook because when you when you see like the Otello blackface thing, yeah, I think the 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 instinct is to say get it off the stage. Anything is better than yeah. that. But is casting a white a white person in place of it as so often happens? Is that actually better? Um, um, I don't know that that's his point, and I actually don't know that there's an answer to that question. Right. But he does say talent should always outweigh any arbitrary need to embrace diversity. Um, and then, you know, something that's interesting, and I this is not the point of his article, but this is something that I've seen a lot of recently. Um, painting someone to look like a legitimate character isn't blackface. And I was in a production, I'm going to admit this, I was in a production of Aida in which I had to paint my body a much darker color mm. than I am uh, and it was brown uh, to be Egyptian and then there were others who had to paint their skin color much even darker to be Ethiopian prisoners and there was a large discussion of whether or not that was blackface and as like the white cis male in the room I was like I don't know I don't think that was blackface I think that was trying to accurately portray who these people were supposed to be um, whereas blackface as he says is meant to demean and mischaracter mischaracterize a um a culture and a right. people and so i just thought that was an interesting point it just seems like very low budget costuming to me it really <laughs> does seem like yeah. low budget costuming it, it there, is, there it are is. other markers of egyptianhood and <laughs> ethiopianhood you know right dude it, it was yeah it is very tricky. i'm not proud I to admit it either yeah, I'm i like, mean it, it, it's definitely a, a, a real issue because you know if you have something like aida I mean, ideally, you would cast. I, ideally, ideally, you would cast that entirely of uh, Egyptian singers, I suppose. <laughs> but that's that, that's not going to happen in most places. You know what I mean? Um, I think the point, though, of that particular section is what he says. Um, if we say that only black singers should sing Aida and Otello, and only Asian singers should sing Butterfly and Turndo, would we get a black Don Carlo or an Asian Elisabetta? we will essentially make minority artists less marketable yeah. with this approach. And I think that's the most important And I point think there. we have to have faith in the audience that they are suspending their disbelief on so many levels that one more level that's a of disbelief, point. you know what, they're yeah, going to be okay. I mean, <laughs> like, well, uh, Chocho-san is supposed to be, what, 15? Yeah. And she's always played by someone who's at least in her late 30s. You yeah. know I mean? It, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a tricky thing. I, and I... Opera is sort of in an interesting position because it carries with it a lot of sort of um, uh, extra sort of historical baggage because it's been around since, you know, for about 400 years. And, we're, we're getting a yeah. call right now. I wonder if, if you can pass them through and I'll, I'll do the concluding uh, paragraph from Russell Thomas's article. Here he goes. I truly believe that the ultimate survival of classical music and opera depends on figuring out, figuring out the issue of diversity, as well as making organizations representative of the community in a way that engages everyone without dumbing down or playing it safe and palatable. Artists and arts organizations have a responsibility to not simply entertain, but to push boundaries, be better representatives of, of their communities, and in some ways be social activists. Diversity in the back office will lead to more diverse stages and in turn more diverse audiences. This is accomplished by making sure everyone not only has a seat at the table, but that their mind, body, and soul is full. Signed, Russell Thomas. Love, love <laughs> Russell, Russell Thomas. Thomas. You know, I, okay. I'm glad that this was written and with the candor that he wrote it. And I think, as you said, I think our most important um, objective. Our most important objective is to share it. Yeah. Um, and I certainly don't think that I'm the right <laughs> vehicle to 
do anything other than share it. You know what I mean? I think change starts with, uh, especially in this situation, the people directly involved. Yeah, but also like calling it out as a problem, first of all. You know, like obviously yep. we all know it's a problem, but like really describing what the problem is. I think so many people are just like, oh no, we're post that. You know, I'm like, yeah. look, we have Russell Thomas as our tenor. <laughs> you know, what do you think about the whole, um, about there not being any artistic directors or, um, or conductors that are leading meeting? Oh, that is widely known in the classical music uh, administrative community. Um, I um, went to a, a conference last summer yes. uh, where one of the presenters was Sphinx, uh, the uh, Orchestra of Color. Um, and they Where was this? Sphinx. Uh, this was Chorus America, actually. Okay. And they just like did this presentation about like, okay, let's look at, you know, arts administration. Who's black you know and, yeah. sudden, and they showed like it's like the tiniest tiniest slice of the pie you know mm -hmm. it's not even not even worth mentioning you know? yeah so it is still a white mostly a white man's game you know yeah um, anyway we have uh coincidentally a related story that has been uh been shared widely on the facebook and it comes from cnn uh and it's by a scholar of opera and it has to do with the release of beyonce's uh homecoming documentary and album um, the author, Naomi Andre, who apparently is an opera scholar, uh, writes uh, while, uh, well, the, the byline of the you article. You said apparently. She's yeah. on CNN. <laughs> she's, she's like nationally published. And like, she's very, uh, very well yes. qualified. Okay. Uh, well, her, what is the, the headline of the article? I, I suddenly cannot find it. Can you find um, it? Beyonce's Homecoming, Why the Opera World Should Take Notes. There we go. Okay. So, why we should take notes. So, the, the, the Coachella. The crux paragraph is while opera has stood the test of time with far more success than symphony a genre that now feels like a dying art burn uh, the <laughs> opera world is still a traditional space it often lacks the self-assurance to use its standing to truly innovate in contrast beyonce sets the trends i wish opera had the confidence to drive forward in this way uh, besides uh, opulent sets and putting pressure on young young singers to be thinner and take their clothes off. We want a broader representa representation of stories told by a more diverse group of people. We want to feel represented. We want to feel a little homecoming in the opera house. So I haven't seen this Coachella movie, but I hear it's great, and she totally honors. <laughs> she honors like the. You just sounded so old. The Co the Coachella, yeah. The I Coachella. haven't seen the Coachella the movie with the Beyonce. Yeah, but she uh, honors the historically black uh, colleges. Like she wears like a. Morehouse sweater or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But also the idea that Beyonce is like this mega, you know, force in popular culture and she can draw attention to anything she wants to. Like mm -hmm. if she decides she wants to like do a video in the Louvre, all of a sudden people are going to know how to pronounce the Louvre because they want to go see that art, you know, because sure. she pointed to it, you know. Uh, it's it's very much sort of uh, sort of the crux of the article, uh, the hook rather, is comparing uh, the Coachella performance to the uh, famous uh, performance in 1939 of the opera singer Marian Anderson uh, when she uh, performed to a crowd of 75,000 people um, because she'd been barred from singing inside uh, Constitution Hall, um, and it's it, it really sort of drives the point home that that with these other voices, these uh, these minority voices, literally in the case of opera singers' <laughs> voices, you do you can really use opera, use singing, use art 
to really push these social changes forward and why it's so important to have them represented, which goes back to uh, Russell Thomas's article. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting sort of uh, comparison because obviously Beyonce is not an opera singer, right. um, but she... But she did, very star, she did star in Carmen the Hip Hopera. That's true. Yeah. Oh, and that might be a little hint there for those of you who are coming to Triviata. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but let's be real, though. I mean, I don't know if it's the cart before the horse or what, but um, opera is not in a position yet at this moment, culturally, to be, I think, pushing the envelope and to be, you I, know... I disagree. The... I think, I mean, it's not mainstream sort of big opera houses are scared to, but we are absolutely... There are still people coming to opera houses. We have a platform. We have a, a medium that can express these complex, um, challenging issues. And with the right representation, I think we can get back on the sort of the, uh, uh, well, the vanguard, so to speak. I actually agree with you, Weston. I... I think we can be vehicles of change. I think we can be on the forefront. And if, if that's at the risk of alienating a few audience members who have extra cash to donate, well, then so be it, right? right. Um, no. But I think the point, um, both Russell Thomas's and then this, the end of this article is that diversity has to, people of diversity have to be included and have to have a seat at the table in order for this to Absolutely. happen. Absolutely. I, um, I and, completely agree with you, but go ahead, finish your thought. And as of right now, that doesn't, ha yeah. that's not the case. No, what, what I'm saying <laughs> is that like, we have to look at where we are and who is coming to the opera. And if we're going to invest in a composer and a program and storytelling, it's really effing expensive to put on opera and to do it well. And we need like great composers uh, to drive this and great artists to get behind it. And for there to be, you know, companies that really want to develop the next great African-American composer, the next great Asian composer, you know? Absolutely. And right now, who we have, you know, who's our composer at the moment is somebody like Jake Heggie. And thank God, you know, he is concerned about these issues too, and he is trying to tell as many different stories as possible. Mm. All right. Go see Moby Dick! <laughs> yeah, go see Moby Dick, C-O-T. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, we got to move on. So you've got this killer opera podcast, but you still have yet to break the top 10 podcast list on iTunes. Hey, man, we've all been there. It's time for a little marketing lesson. That's up next, only on America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear-a-hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. 
Inc. Magazine, that's I-N-C period magazine, recently published an article on their website about the creators of Opera Wire, a website dedicated to the daily coverage of the world of opera. We've used it once or twice ourselves (laughs) per episode. Uh, (laughs) The link to that article is on our website. Uh, And this article, I think, is a very interesting, um, not just because, you know... uh, It's a listicle. It's a listicle, uh, but I I do want (laughs) to, before we get into sort of um, um, the nitty-gritty of it, I do want to point out that... even though the article isn't really about Opera Wire, Opera Wire is a really fantastic resource if you're interested in sort of uh, opera news. They have uh, in like sort of introductory segments for new listeners, um, really up to date stuff. It's a fantastic website. Up to date information about who's pulling out of what production. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's very, very, very up to date. Buzz, BuzzFeed esque. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a little bit, a little bit, uh, a little bit nicer, I think, than BuzzFeed. Ooh, um, but <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but this article is actually not so much about the website itself as it is about sort of how they got to um, the large audience they do now. They have many, many people from many, many countries visit the site regularly, even though this is this relatively uh, niche topic. And so they're kind of all talking about how they kind of got there, how they approached it from a marketing perspective. And speaking of marketing, this Wednesday, Triviata, use code OBS for $30 tickets. That's Wednesday, April 24th from 5.30 to 8 p.m. at the AON Center in downtown Chicago. You can get a link to tickets on our website. Also known as the Aon Center. Aon Center. Oh, that makes more sense. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. But jumping back from that, back to marketing. Patrick and Shirley D. Ryan just took all their money away from us now. (laughs) Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Um, But, yeah, so... uh, Well, well, actually, I mean, we only have, like, 10 minutes before we have to move on. But So I want to just, like, just steal your thunder us slightly and (gasps) talk about an article that is on Opera Wire uh, from baritone Lucas Meacham. Uh, It's his article, How to Use Social Media to Grow Your Career. Okay, wait. First, though... The the first article, the title is, With the Right Marketing, You Can Create Buzz Around Any Product, Even Opera. Now, tell us about Lucas Meacham and what yeah. that title is. Um, cool, cool. Five cool. Ways to Use Social Media to Grow Your Career. Sweet. Mm. I just wanted the time together. Yeah. Well, the thing is about that Opera Wire article, that, or about, about Opera Wire, is like, I hate when people disparage opera so much like even opera like it's like you know talking about cancer or yeah something like that you know it's like oh nobody wants to talk about opera you know yeah. but somebody did it you know so well it's, it. the cool thing about opera wire being featured on the inc 500 website is that that is for the fastest growing like small businesses and so that there is something that is so opera specific that is growing i think is of note um and so it, like it is disparaging but i think it's only disparaging because people are like wait that can be successful and opera wire is like yeah it really can be. Mm. Okay, sorry. No. I'm done interrupting you. No, well, I mean, these I'll articles are very make close. Make out with you close. later. <laughs> these articles are very closely related, and Lucas Meacham is giving five sort of like tips, another listicle, uh, on how to use social media. And uh, one of the implicit things in the beginning of his article is, is to have a brand. And uh, his first piece of advice is to stick to your brand. Your brand is what you're about. You know, for Lucas, it's about being a baritone. And... Uh, you know, try to make sure that the, what you're posting on Instagram or Facebook or whatever platform you're using mm-hmm. uh, is related to your brand. You know, he might have like a sub brand, which is his second point. Find your sub brand. Mm. And for him, uh, he's known for his other interests, which are, um, let's see, maybe sports. Oh, his rescue My, dog. His yeah. rescue dog. <laughs> so, so it's okay for his main posts to be about, you know, being in a show about what it's like to be at rehearsal or what it's like to travel as an opera singer or 
you know, what it's like to go to a Zitz probe or these types of things, you know. And then he has this other thing that he does, which is talk about his dog. And sometimes it's nice when both, you know, ideas about what his brand is are represented. Sometimes it's just about his dog. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's just two concepts. So people are going to look at right. your content and they know basically what they're getting. You know, if they want to mm -hmm. hear about the life of an opera singer or if they want to hear about a dog, and it's not like everything. It's not all of a sudden political or it's not all of a sudden about right. food or about, you know, sports or something like that. You know, it's, it's very interesting because I, I feel like uh, people tend to forget that not just opera singers, but performers in general are always to a degree um, selling themselves as a personality. Um, more than just, uh, they're not just a singer. They, they're, their entire, w with the advent of social media in particular, you always have to have even little minor things that were once part of your private life are now part of the yeah. thing that you're selling. And I would argue that there are still, well, it's, I follow a ton of opera singers on Instagram, and there are some who do the sub-brand much better than others and that <laughs> no but then truly like i think larry brownlee is one for example who's fantastic at his sub brand um and do you follow him on instagram i don't you? but like you know just for our trivia listeners who do you think is the most followed opera singer on instagram you don't have to answer oh that's Ooh. actually a good question you don't have to answer. Ooh. oh that's great okay. right. but back to that i mean because i just i said him off the top of my head because we're a sports you know Quote, unquote, that's our sub brand. That's, that's our, our sub brand. It's sports, yeah. and one of don't his tell them that they know too much. <laughs> cheerleading, <laughs> but, but one of his sub brands is sports. Like he's yeah. very active, and I think that that's fantastic because for me, I'm like, well, Larry Brownlee is more than just this scintillating tenor who mm. is, you know, has this gorgeous instrument. He also loves the Pittsburgh Steelers and is great at tennis. And I love seeing that part of his life. I think it's hilarious, you know, because then it's it it scales back and that's Lucas's point here mm. um, with the sub brand. And I think that's really an important part because I think that there are opera singers right now who want that notoriety and who want that following, but kind of take themselves too seriously. Yeah. Like, yeah. Congrats, like, yes, we know what we, what you do yeah. and like, no, you don't wear a gown seven days a week, <laughs> uh, 365 days a year. I know you don't. Number three, post and comment on other posts consistently on social media platforms. There is no overnight success in social media. It takes a lot of hard work posting and consistently and posting consistently and being active on the platform. Follow other brand related profiles and comment on their posts to give your profile a voice. This takes a lot of time, but it's well worth it. Post regularly and after sticking to it for about a year or two, you'll begin to see them pay off. Hmm. Or you could just buy a bunch of Russian bots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the real secret. Dude, they got 24,000 right followers and six of them are real. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is. Hashtag president. Hashtag. Oh, wait. I'm so there kidding. is. A, so I, I have some marketing experience now, and there is this like kind of rule within marketing. We talk about uh, the 75 25 rule. And um, obviously, if you are a performing arts organization or, or an artist, you are eventually trying to sell a performance. You're trying to do a call to action to like come to my show or buy tickets to this or support this thing, you know, and you should only ask people to do something that benefits you or your cause 25% of the time, 75% hmm. hmm. of the time you should be giving what we call organic content Yeah, that hmm. makes visiting your page enjoyable. So <laughs> if you're always asking every time, if you, if you create a Facebook page for your, let's say your chamber music group, you know, and you're always asking people to buy tickets, you know, or to come to your event, people are going to be like, you know what? I'm, I've seen enough ads. You've become enough. numb to it. Yeah, exactly. So make them want to come to your, 
page or whatever you want to call it, your, your, your profile, to see your content, you know? I'm kind of curious, just a, a question to you two, as uh, singers uh, uh, every now and again. Oh, thank you. People <laughs> never call me a singer. So. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful singer, uh, Oliver. Mm -hmm. Beautiful in every beautiful way. Beautiful and brown, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Compromarios only, though. <laughs> Only Compromeros. Uh, but the, uh, um, uh, do, do you ever sort of pursue this kind of marketing technique in your social media? or do Because I, I, I feel like all the accounts I follow from you seem really more genuine, or, or is that just what you want me to think? Um, I've, I've tried to be as uh, organic <laughs> on my social media mm. as possible. I think your social media presence comes across as very organic and genuine. Yeah. It I'm, comes trying to, I'm trying to advocate for other things. Yes. You know, like, and I don't... I, I don't often promote my own stuff. Like, I don't tell people, like, come hear me sing at this thing, you know? Mm. I, um, can I answer that, too? Yeah, absolutely. When, so I did a young artist program. I, you know what? I can actually talk about it. I did Sarasota Opera many, many times. Um, and basically did as much as you could do there without being a principal. Sure. And um, they were so discouraging about posting on social media. And I, that was so early in my career that it really stuck with me because they basically hammered it home that like, that's it. If you post one bad thing, like that, it was like somehow going to like blackball you from the rest of it. And so early on in my career, I was like, well, I'm not going to blacklist you. So what? I think you were confusing black, black, ball, blue ball and blacklist. black, so you black <laughs> ball, yeah. bla blacklist. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. There's something Freudian there, I'm sure. But so to to your question, Weston, because of that and because it happened so early in my career, I chose to view my social media as not a marketing tool. It was mm. my life. And so I tried I viewed my opera singing as my job and I very much thought of it like, well, my brother's a firefighter and I don't see him posting to like, you know come check me out and fight in this fire. Like, that wasn't <laughs> what he did. And so I, I similarly was like, well, I don't need to be like, hey, come see this show. So I didn't really do it. There was, like, snippets, and I think people really knew. Um, but because of that, so because of a young artist program, it, like, got knocked into my brain. Like, that's not how you grow your brand. The way you grow your brand is singing really well. And you know what? I, I don't think you could be more wrong. That being said, I do, I do and did see a lot of my colleagues posting stuff that I'm like, eh, that's really not that great. So there is a caveat to that. But I think hmm. what Lucas Meacham is saying, you don't have to post yourself singing arias, but if you post, you know, like, check out my costume, check, you know, that's part of building your brand. And then if you, sure. if you like a beautiful picture of a theater or, or messing around with your colleagues, but showing that your, per, that your people, um, and people is the business of opera. Yeah, inside baseball, like, you know, what's under the cover? Okay, under the hood. Uh, under the covers. Black balls. Else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, two more quick ones before we have to finish here. Uh, number four, entertain and inform. Keep in mind two things before each post. Number one, does this better people's lives in some way? Do they gain something from it? And two, is this entertaining uh, and or does it spark an emotion? Most people don't have, don't have a music degree, so share your knowledge and love of music through your journey to success, not of success. Amen. Yeah, I don't. I'm 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 so sick of like honored to announce or pleased to announce. I've won thrilled. this competition. Yeah. Thrilled to announce. Yeah. Thrilled to announce. <laughs> I'll be doing my 17th yeah. Young Artist program this yeah. summer. <laughs> and lastly, number five, have fun. Yeah. Social media shouldn't be a chore. If you're not having fun, your followers aren't having fun, and it shows. Express yourself and share your joy of music to reach a maximum impact for yourself and your followers. And I have to say, 
Rachel Willis Sorensen is killing it on social media. Oh, she's awesome. Yeah. And she does like these video series. Like, she's like okay, this week we're going to talk about dieting or we're going to talk about dirty. She's like, and, like, she's like the new version Joyce Donato, who I also know. kills it. Yeah. But she's yeah. so earnest and like she like sets up her camera and she like talks into her computer, you know, as if she was like talking to a young singer and giving them advice. And it feels very wholesome and sincere. And that's hard to pull Yeah, that's off. awesome. Yeah. Hey, wait, can I say something kind of funny? I follow a singer who's doing really well. And yeah. it like they are a friend of mine, but their Instagram page, if you like scroll it, yeah. it's everyone's a selfie. It's yeah. the same picture <laughs> 900 times. And I'm like, that's exactly Dude. my, uh, there my are Instagram so many feed. accounts. I could, we could trash talk. <laughs> <laughs> <You're> really, like, <laughs> I just think about it. I'm like, I'm glad you're happy. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> Maybe know. when you're big enough, you don't have to worry about the social media so yeah. much. All right. Uh, so, uh, all right, we got to move on. We've got lots of stuff coming up. We got the two minute drill. So many stories, so little time on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill. Plus, our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Operaland over the past week. The 41 singers battling it out in Placido Domingo's Operalia competition this summer were announced today. Competing under the U.S. banner are sopranos Felicia Moore, Liv Redpath, Gabriela Reyes, mezzo-soprano Amanda Lynn Bottoms, contralto Lauren Decker, tenors Carlos Enrique Santelli, Robert Robert Watson and uh, Robert Watson rather and Matthew White, bass baritone Christian Purcell, and friend of the show countertenor Arya Nussbaum Coam. Go USA! English National Opera has announced that their artistic director, Daniel Kramer, will be stepping down in July, a mere three years after his appointment. The Guardian notes that the change comes after a, quote, series of no hits and several misses. Ugh, ouch. Christopher Goldscheider, a former viola player for the Royal Opera House who sued the company for, an, for auditory shock after sitting in front of the brass section in rehearsals for Wagner's Ring Cycle, has beaten an appeal after the ROH contested his successful suit last year. While the company still has to pay up, the original high court ruling that hearing protection should be used in the pit at all times was deemed unfeasible. Cincinnati Opera unveiled their 2019-2020 season this week, and it's a special one for the U.S.'s second oldest opera company. It'll be their 100th anniversary in 2020. 
The rare problem of the new opera that's too short is the headline of New York Times review of Bound by friend of the show Huang Ro and librettist Bao Long Chu. The Times' Anthony Tomasini writes that Huang Ro will expand the 45-minute chamber opera as he did with his 2014 hour-long work, An American Shoulder, uh, Soldier. Look back in your podcast feeds for, uh, feeds for interviews with composer Huang Ro and the star of American Soldier, tenor Andrew Stenson. A Cantonese opera in Hong Kong stars a familiar face to American audiences, Donald Trump. Lee Kui Ming's Trump on Show reimagines Trump's life as he visits China to meet various significant historical figures from that country and even his long-lost and fictional twin brother. Exit stage right, Irish soprano Heather Harper has passed away at the age of 88. She came to international attention when she stepped in for Galina Vishnevskaya for the first performance of Britain's War Requiem. She went on to become one of the most beloved and respected concert and operatic artists of her generation, specializing in the oratorios of Handel and creating a definitive portrayal of Ellen Orford in Britain's Peter Grimes. And on this day, April 22nd, composer Ethel Smythe was born in 1858. Manfred Goritz's much less famous version of Wozzeck pre- premiered in 1926. Giancarlo Menotti's The Old Maid and the Thief premiered in 1939. And Jean-Philippe Rameau's Nacy, uh, Nais, rather, premiered in Paris in 1749. And that is your two-minute drill. And of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. We want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687. Or you can tweet us at Opera Box Score. So we heard Heather Harper in the iconic recording. Iconic of Peter Grimes, which stars John Vickers and Heather Harper as Ellen Orford, uh, conducted by Colin Davis. That recording, holy moly. It's uh, it's one of my favorites. Uh, I think uh, John Vickers, uh, I mean, obviously, is sort of... Pretty mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Is amazing. Yeah, uh, maybe not such a good person. I mean, there are some lots of terrible stories about right. what he was like, but... Um, as far as like the type of voice you need to sing that role and to like just the moment you open your mouth, you know who's singing and it's, you know, scary and tortured, you know, yeah. you can't beat John Vickers. But I have to say, back to Heather Harper, mm-hmm. uh, one of the first recordings that I ever purchased with my young gay dollars of working uh, at, <laughs> uh, at a gay coffee house when I was 16 was the Colin Davis Messiah. And I, mm-hmm. bought, I bought it actually in a discount bin at what's, what was called Rose Records. And I had no idea who any singer was. I just knew I wanted to hear this work because I was learning it in high school. And Heather Harper was the soprano soloist. Uh, I think Helen Watts was the contralto. And to this day, it is one of my top, and I probably own maybe 20 complete recordings of Messiah now. It is one of my mm. top three. It is so Aww. good. And Heather Harper is but just... But it's like a super... That's like a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And Heather Harper, I've, I've sought out many of her recordings, and she also did a kind of a not-so-easy-to-find uh, Marriage of Figaro as the Countess, conducted by Daniel Barenboim. I think Judith Blagan is the Susanna. And she's just such a... I don't know. She just seems like a very human... You know, she doesn't have like a special voice that's like, oh, my God, she can do that with her voice. No, it's just like, this is what singers who work 
and are smart and have careers in the <laughs> 70s and the 80s or in the 60s and 70s and 80s. This is what they sound like. Just good musicianship, you know, intelligent phrasing, you know, a beautiful tone, you know, just hitting all the marks that sometimes these days we don't get all of those things, you know. Yeah, her performance, uh, everything I've heard of hers is, is always very spellbinding is the word I would use. Okay. You know, it's always, I, you can't help but focus on her when she's singing. Um, but yeah, um, uh, go ahead. I want to talk about, can we, can we, do you care if we move on? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, then go for it. I was just about to I do it, talk but you about can the jump story right about Christopher uh, Goldshatter, a former yes. viola player at the Royal Opera House. Um, that was a fascinating story. I know we've talked about it before on the show, but now that there's a bit of a ruling. So to think about that, I mean, auditory shock from an orchestral player because of a brass section in the ring cycle. This is unshocking to me. What's it called when you have the ringing in your ears? Um, tinnitus. Tinnitus. Like I have tinnitus, and right. 100 percent. That's from being an opera singer. Well, like this isn't this isn't just uh, tinnitus though. This is audio shock. Like correct. This, this is not shock, this yeah. is not mere hearing loss. To give you some uh, background, uh, he can no longer be around loud noises or yeah. music. He literally had to move out to the country to get away from loud noises, which is incredibly sort of almost traumatizing i would think for a for a musician not he, otherwise he'll, ex- he'll experience his pain nausea dizziness so yeah, yeah. He, like, he, he his whole life i it, it blows my mind i had never heard of anything like this happening right um and I, 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 you gotta wonder like definitely probably happened before right it's got to have and, and this this is the sort of the interesting thing here uh because obviously this this uh this court case actually went through uh about a year ago initially and this is the appeal yeah. uh, that came through um, and uh, the initial uh, ruling um, uh, uh, was like, okay, the ROH loses, and they've lost this one too. But they had like this extra stipulation that's like, all right, um, because of this ruling, everyone in an orchestra is going to have to wear hearing protection during all um, uh, all rehearsals and all performances. That seems like it, uh, it got ruled against, right? And this so that is, was this is what the... got overturned this right. time, uh, and that is sort of an interesting thing because uh, at a certain point. I mean, Wagner's going to be loud. What do you what What do you do to uh, prevent this sort of problem? Uh, if you guys have start, any ideas, hit me. No, they're going to start. <laughs> people are going to start signing waivers. I think there's going to be part of like, you want. Oh yeah, maybe you want to play viola in this orchestra. You have to <laughs> sign yeah. away your right to hearing. You ever <laughs> gone to like a rock concert though and been like, mm, that's too loud? Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have, and I'm yeah. like, this is damaging. Oh, like, I, I thought Jesus Christ Superstar at Lyric Opera was too loud. Like, really? I wanted earplugs. <laughs> I'm not even kidding you. Like, I wanted earplugs. So it, it's it's a very tricky sort of situation. I, I think you know uh, that my solution would be to sort of destigmatize this kind of thing. Find out you know if things like this ha- do happen frequently. Let's kind of hear about them more. Yeah. Hear those corner- kinds of stories, and um, make people who are having these kinds of issues, these musicians, feel comfortable to come forward and pursue solutions. Correct. Maybe uh, specific to that production. Like maybe you could. Uh, Rearrange the orchestra a little bit so you're not right in front of the brass section. It's, or it's definitely an opportunity to research and see what you know. Yeah, gather I mean, data data points for it. This is maybe this is the first time we're hearing about, it, but who knows how many other yeah musicians have suffered yeah. and just have not spoken up about it or had the gumption to sue. You know. Yeah. Um, I have to apologize. Uh, there's a redaction already on the two minute drill, which is entirely my fault. Uh, oh. Tomasini writes that Huang Ro should expand the 45 minute chamber opera bound, not that he will. Ah. Yeah, that's Thank you, my, that's my typo. So, <laughs> but uh, anyway, friend of the show Huang Ro getting props in the New York Times. Congratulations on the review. I like the word. I like that you used um, the term redacted. Yeah, <laughs> we should have redacted twenty five percent of this show. Yeah. Ooh, so ooh, topical, uh, topical, topical, topical. Opera- <laughs> 
I I like the idea of like following some of these competitions that are you know with musicians that are sort of our generation, and I love. Are you talking about Operalia? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lauren Decker uh, is a contralto in the Ryan Opera Center program here Mm -hmm. in uh, in Chicago, and I have written about her talent before. This is an incredible instrument, contralto, and uh, we don't. Her voice type is rare, and she is getting better and better with each year that she's in Ryan Opera Center, and she is going to be a major force uh, in her Bach. Uh, coming up, and so I'm so glad that she's she made it to this stage of the competition. We'll follow to see how she does this summer. Uh, Arianus Bancon, we all know how amazing he is. He won the Met, so add another laurel to his crown. <laughs> uh, and there's a tenor who I love so much who's competing for Mexico. Uh, his name is Mario Rojas. I love this guy so oh, much. Great. So anyway, Mario Rojas may be a clue in our triviata. <laughs> so Ooh. So yeah. <laughs> and for $30, yes. <laughs> who does Oliver love? <laughs> you can hear that question. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think another sort of uh, interesting story on this list is, uh, is really, I mean, other Voltsek. Just, just, just me. I think that's the most fascinating yep. story. No, it was just, just you. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, literally, when I was putting together the on this day segment, I looked and saw that Votsek premiered. I'm like, Votsek, wow! And then I was like, Oh, it's the other one. Did you listen to it at all? I've I've listened to it before. Uh, it's it's interesting. It's um it's it's more um early Kurt Viley, you know, pre jazz Kurt Violin sort of. Okay. You know, it's it's a, it's a, a lot more tonal, obviously, uh, but. Literally, what happened was, um, uh, I believe uh, Berg finished writing the original Wozzeck in, I want to say, 1922, and uh, it premiered, ended up premiering in late 1925. Um, and around the same time, um, the, uh, uh, Gerlitt was was working on his Wozzeck, and they had no idea. Yeah, there were that the like the, the only one of them. There was only room in the world. There for can one only Wozzeck. be one. But it's really weird to hear like that opening long zong Wozzeck long zong sung by a baritone in a completely different way. It's, oh yeah. It's, it's bizarre. I love it. Um, before we run out of time here, I do want to talk a little bit about the English National Opera mm-hmm. um, right. and Daniel Kramer. I think it's interesting because to me, um, it's a company for as long as we've been doing this show, which we're going on, I don't know, like five years, four years, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like English National Opera has experienced uh, any success that's like just simple as putting one foot in front of the other. Like, it really seems like they've struggled every single step of the way to find their identity which is interesting because as long as i followed opera it was like this is what english national opera did and they were successful and they got the best singers that they could and it was like yes they had their niche but they were really good at it and it just seems in the last couple years and i don't think it's just totally specific to daniel kramer right i it's just really interesting to me that a, a company with that notoriety is somehow unable to find any tangible success. I do think the Guardian article was a little unfair in implying that every problem they've had it was his was fault. His fault. I, exactly, and that's what well, I'm saying. Well, they did it, win an Olivia Award for their Porgy and Bess, which is coming to yeah, the they, Met. They've so got, that's I mean, one. It, it's not as if it's like... It's and like, it does say that in the article, but it's just like, I, I know that like with the translation thing we, that we talked about recently, right. uh, there's just been a number of different things. Uh, declining ticket sales across the board, unable... I mean... Well, in a way, maybe it's reassuring that like we're not just struggling to like figure things out here in the U.S. Like Even companies yeah. up, up with a long history you know, are... Are trying to misery loves company. Yeah, uh, speaking speaking uh, of misery, that's Donald Trump opera. <laughs> mm. Well, this is a this is Wait, a Cantonese can I be, opera. Can I be honest? Yes, go ahead. 
nah, this is bad. We do, we shouldn't share political views. I didn't read it because it was about Trump, and I just was like, anything that involves him, I'm not gonna. It's 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 Cantonese it's, opera, which is really is that a different. Minded? Tell me, I'm close-minded. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fair. I mean, Trump is. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna be political. I don't like him. I don't think that. Uh, well, yeah. goodbye to all of our Trump supporters. <laughs> yeah, listeners. exactly. Sorry, yeah. guys. There goes our uh, grant from the NEA. So. <laughs> but I I do think uh, it's. Uh, I do think that's interesting. This is a, a Cantonese opera, so it's obviously not traditional Western opera. It's coming from a different tradition, um, and we here on Opera Box Score know less about it. Um, but I do think it's very interesting when you have. Why are you looking at me? Just because I'm Asian? <laughs> I wasn't looking oh, okay. at you. I was looking in the okay. other direction. <laughs> I was staring right at you. Oliver should know about Cantonese opera. Oh, okay. All right. I need to end this right now. Wait, 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 wait. Before you do. Um, just one more little hint for our listeners. Uh, you talked about Wozzeck, there being two versions. Uh, maybe there's another opera uh, about some uh, people that remind us of the cast of Rent. Uh, maybe there's another version of that that's not Rent. Oh, mm. oh, really? Um, not Rent, you say? Yeah. All right, let's wrap it up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, I've got a good call right off the bat. The Triviata event. Uh, use code OBS for $30 tickets on lyricopera.org or find it on our website. Uh, that's going to be April, uh, Wednesday, April 24th from 5.30 to 8 p.m. at the Aeon Center in downtown Chicago. What else do we have, guys? I've got two for you. Here's your Easter egg. These are the categories for the trivia on Wednesday. First category, we're calling it Playbook 2019-2020. Understanding the plots of the 1920 Lyric Opera Chicago season. Popera, hopefully that one explains itself, popular culture. Uh, third category, court composer. Uh, who are the composers of the 2019-2020 season? And what are some interesting facts hmm. about them? Hmm. Um, eye-hand coordination, which will be uh, an identifying uh, an artist, an opera company, an artist, uh, opera house, uh, or an opera itself, uh, by just seeing a picture of it. And uh, lastly, our last composer is Opera Balls. That is my category, Opera Balls. That's our sports theme <laughs> category. And my real Classy. good call for this episode is the Met broadcast, uh, radio broadcast of Clemenza di Tito. Now, I follow, as we all know, the new forum for classical singers, and like, there's been a meme going around about like what opera are you is underrated and blah, blah, blah. And like, Clemenza di Tito seems to come up a lot as, like, why do people bother this opera? And I think the Met made an amazing case mm. for the show. Singing top to bottom was amazing. Elsa Vandenheber as Vitalia, Joyce DiDonato as uh, Sesto, Matthew Polanzani as um, Tito. But the person for me that stole the show was Emily D'Angelo, Canadian mezzo-soprano, in the role of Anyo. My good call is Moby Dick opens at Chicago Opera Theater this week. Speaking of Jake Heggie, friend of the show, failure of the show. Oh, my God. Sorry, sorry, everybody in the world. Uh, but Moby Dick opens on April 25th, and there's only two performances. That's on the 25th and then Sunday the 28th. Excellent. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. 
On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera, whether you make it to Triviata or not. We're back on Monday, April 22nd at 9 p.m. Central. Oh, not 22nd, that's today. Uh, 29th at 9 p.m. Central with more opera news and our hot takes on those stories. Join us then. This is WNUR FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's Sound Experiment.